The movie demonstrates how quickly amiable and inconsequential can shift to hackneyed and labored. That's Glenn Kenny, the New York Times, who's an outstanding critic. We once had him on the podcast, me and Joe. He was awesome. He wrote a book about Goodfellas, which is really good. But I'll never forget, when I see Glenn Kenny's name, how mad he got about the Zoom link. Either something was wrong with his computer, or Joe sent him the wrong link, and then somebody started calling him incensed. So every time I see Glenn Kenny, I go, terrific critic, awesome book about Goodfellas, and a man who is ill-tempered. Like, if, if something happens he's not happy about, Glenn Kenny will let you know. So Glenn Kenny was not happy but about my father. I wish I could see a video review of his review, but I agree with him. That's what our featured film this week. We're also talking about Spider-Man, of course, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, uh, which has gotten rave reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. What a surprise. I'm not as enamored of a superhero movie. But the good news is, we got two great guests today. Man, Steve James. The director of Hoop Dreams, are you kidding me? One of the most important documentaries ever. I would argue the greatest basketball movie ever. I still never forget when I saw it back in 1994. I'm going to ask Steve about Hoop Dreams, about his Roger Ebert documentary, Life Itself, which I also adored. Stevie, which is a very good documentary I saw at the Toronto Film Festival. And the reason why he's on, he's got a new 30 for 34 part series all about Bill Walton. That's going to be on ESPN, Luckiest Guy in the World, which is what Bill Walton constantly refers to himself as. And... TJ Newman is our special guest. She's awesome. She is the best-selling author. Her first book is called Falling. It was number two New York Times bestseller list. It's an amazing backstory. We just had her come to MLB Network on Thursday, and the inscription she wrote to me in the book to me was, she goes, you sell my, my book better than anybody. And she was posting on social media, Adnan Brooks, the greatest hype man ever. And it's true. Her story, she's a flight attendant making $35,000 a year, and she writes a book on cocktail napkins about a terrorist attack on a plane. She gets turned down by 41 literary agents. It's insane to me. As you'll hear in the interview, I wrote a book once. I got turned down like 15 times. I go, that's enough. I don't, need, I don't need 50 rejections. Like, I got it. It wasn't good enough. It happens. Take the L. She had 41 rejections. 40 seconds said yes. Number two New York Times bestseller list. Now, that book then gets sold to Hollywood. I think it's universal. Seven-figure deal. Never really sure, Cody, when they say seven figures. Is it low yeah. seven figures? Is it high seven figures? I'm just going to assume low seven figures. So let's say it's a million dollars. Okay. Because if it was high, she'd go, high seven figures, like $9 million. I'm like, yeah. But let's say low seven figures. New book is called Drowning. She just gave me a copy. I'm about 50 pages in. We'll find out by the time this podcast airs whether or not that was on the New York Times bestseller list. I'm sure it is because it's gotten rave reviews and she is everywhere pimping it up, including Secaucus, New Jersey, talking about her beloved Arizona Diamondbacks. But that book has also had the movie rights sold as well. Low, so I, I'm guessing low. We just know seven figures. So seven <laughs> figures for both books. It's an incredible story. Authors, we're back. Well, that was the funniest part of the podcast last week, because Chris <laughs> Collins pointed out, I said something about, I can't believe we got Eva Marie. By the way, thank you to Natalie Eva Marie. She was awesome. And I said, God, she's great, and her husband was great. And you go, yeah, yeah, I do. We're really enjoying a moment. You know, it's not like before we had all those authors, I go, well, actually, we an author next week. <laughs> Chris Collins hit the floor. Perfect timing, but you're like, yeah, enough of those authors. Actually, TJ Newman is coming on next week. She's a best-selling author. We have one We're more back. author coming your way. But don't worry, Steve James is a great documentarian. He's here as well. I hope TJ doesn't listen to this. If she does, she knows what a fan I am. That was Chris that was spoke, not me. I've read your book. I'm reading your second book. It's Chris who's down on authors. I am pro No, authors. I'm not down on authors. It's just that's our specialty. And we had a few episodes where we got away from it. And we are back. I'm not like, what do you mean? I'm excited. Fired up. I could appreciate that. Fired up for the Panthers as well. Hopefully they've been, again, by the time this listens, people have seen what happened in game two, but hopefully they're back. The good news for Cody is, again, season ticket holder, I love the fact you're going to be at games three and four in Sunrise, mm -hmm. Florida, and Metal Arc is funding you to go to game five in Vegas. I believe Mike Ryan and Roy are there for game one. No, two. no, no. Mike, Roy's going with me. Mike is out there right now covering game two. We're recording this on Monday. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it, 
Like, I, let's break it. Let's break it down. Even though the game will have already have happened, like it must win tonight. Must win. They got to win. Yeah. Hopefully, you guys get it tonight. The game one surprising to see Vegas, especially late putting on that offense. But hopefully, you guys bounce back. Goodness, is Heat bounce back again? Recording this on a Monday. Big win last night, oh. game two. So, all square now. What a time. You have your basketball team, and your hockey team in the finals. Like you've seen the Heat win three titles. It, that's that's what I mean. I'm I'm so more like actually with my money and just emotionally. Yeah. I'm more invested in the Panthers right now, but, you know, they can both do it. Let's do this. You're a season ticket holder for the Panthers, but no one loves the Panthers more than Roy. If all things being equal, what would you be more passionate about, Heat or Panthers? If neither had won. This basically um, makes it sound like, what do you like more, basketball or hockey? The last few years I've been in, I, I think currently, just like, obviously, if I'm going my whole life, I would say basketball. But right. the, the last few years, I've been all in with this hockey team. So I would I say it. right now, the way I'm feeling more hockey, but if you if you made if you like I've been a bigger basketball fan my life. So yeah. I'm just saying of the Levitar show, I, I, Roy is all hockey all the way. The rest of the I feel like is more passionate about the Heat. You would be the most inclined, I think, to be with Roy on the hockey side of the Mike Everybody and I, else. me, yeah. me, Mike and Roy have really gotten into this hockey team. But you're right. I mean, if yeah. if if I had to pick, probably more Heat, but yeah. not right now. Feeling this team. It's going to happen, baby. It's going to happen. Um, <laughs> it's, it's always a good podcast. Whenever I get to mention De Niro, Pacino, and Scorsese, today I get to do all three. De Niro, unfortunately, the movie is not great. Spoiler alert about my father. We'll get into it in a second. But my man Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon premieres the Cannes Film Festival. was at a competition, just in case you're wondering why it didn't win the Palme d'Or, but got rave reviews. He then went and saw the Pope. Marty, of course, grew up Catholic. Went and saw the Pope and said, by the way, my next film is going to be a movie about Jesus. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, Marty, like, what's, he, what's the next one he's going to make? DiCaprio, De Niro? He's going, no. He went and saw the Pope. Literally has a meeting. Oh, my God, it's Martin Scorsese. Yep, love Mean Streets. Thank you, Pope. Uh, by the way, my next one's about Jesus. Do I have your blessing? Yeah. <laughs> on Apple Plus, give me $200 million. By the way, for those unaware, Scorsese already has made a film about Jesus. It's called The Last Temptation of Christ. Marty's like, no, I'm doing another one. At 80 years old, I'm doing a sequel. Marty's the best. I cannot wait to see it. I love the fact, like, anybody else, it'd be like going to see, like, the Dalai Lama. Can I make a film about Buddhism? Sure. Which, again, Marty has done. It's called Kundun. Like, for a guy who is synonymous with gangster films, his spirituality and his devotion to making religious epics, it's incredible. As yeah. he himself famously tells the story, when Mean Streets was shown, Father Principe, who was his priest growing up, again, Scorsese studied to be a priest. If, if things had gone differently, he would be Father Scorsese. He would not be the greatest <laughs> director of all time. He said, Father Principe saw Mean Streets, and he's, it's one of the funniest slides ever. He said, Marty... Too much Good Friday, not enough Easter Sunday. Like, hysterical line. I remember, the, I remember I think it was at the AFI. Everyone starts cracking up. And I was too young to get the joke. And then I asked my Catholic friends, he goes, well, Good Friday was very bloody, right? Jesus was massacred. And then Sunday, he was elevated. So he's saying, Main Streets features all the violence and the profanity. And the, I'm like, ah, now I get why that's such a great joke. Father Principe, very witty. So Marty's got a new film coming out after Killers of the Flower Moon comes out. I don't know who's going to play Jesus. Let's, I'm sure DiCaprio's in line. And then my boy Pacino. Fourth child announcing at the age of 83. Like, this is incredible. Like, my wife told me, I go, this is like an article in The Onion. This is clearly made up. She goes, no, no, it's happening. I was like, no, no, everyone knows De Niro's having the seventh kid at 79, and they're always synonymous with each other. They're very good friends. They're not rivals, but people often compare Pacino and De Niro. It's like, no, it's a true story. I, I thought it was fake, too. Yeah, I thought, I thought so it was no fake, There's no way this too. is accurate. It's like, no, yeah. 83, fourth kid. Pacino's the best. You know, everyone's like, it's so selfish. It's not selfish. Pacino will never die. He's living to at least 100. That kid's going to be at least 17. He's going he's gonna to see his dad do Shakespeare, like when he's in high school. That, that's like Merchant of Venice. Pacino's like, I, I've actually played Shylock. 
Here's my film. I'm going to come in at 97 and mop the floor with some Shakespeare. Who would my be the like? Who would be the person next week if like it came out? This person's now having Gene a kid. Hackman. We'd, Gene Hackman. We'd all like just be like, years "Oh, old. come on!" Yeah, yeah, like, I, I, I'm pretty sure because there's a picture posted recently of Gene Hackman. He retired from acting years ago. I believe Welcome to Mooseport with your boy Ray Romano may have been Gene Hackman's last movie. But he retired from that. He lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which I've always wanted to go to. I heard it's gorgeous. He does a lot of painting. Walks around. There's a picture posted like, "Okay, if Gene Hackman's having a kid, I think he's." 89 or 92. He's definitely very old. So I'm putting my money on Gene Hackman having a kid next. I got to look up the Santa Fe, New Mexico. I have not heard what you've heard about this. Are you sure? Oh my God, dude. Santa Fe, my cousin Salim was in the military, so he's been all over. Oh, it does look pretty. Oh, no, no. He said the sunsets will blow your mind. And Joe Tessitore, and I don't know why Tess has a a fascination with Santa Fe or how he's been there, but he told me once. He goes, hey, with you and your family, you've got to go to Santa Fe, New Mexico one day. I'm like, really? He goes, do you have an appreciation for art? I'm like, "Eh, a little bit. Look at this thing. Yeah, look at this. That's incredible. I've never heard of it. The sunsets will blow your mind. The two places I've always wanted to go to in America... Charleston, South Carolina. You know, I went last year and Santa Fe, New Mexico. Like those are the <laughs> places that, that I will never go for work. Like this year, I'm going to go to Seattle for the first time. All-Star Games taking place in Seattle. I'm like, I Same. can't wait. I've always wanted to go to the park, T-Mobile. Have you like it? Sushi, I'm, downtown? I'm going, I'm going next month on an uh, Alaskan cruise with my whole family. And oh, my we're, God. And, and we're going there. It, that's where it's based out of. So we're going there like two days before. Check out Seattle. Have you ever been to Seattle or no? I have, like, when I was really young, we went on another, like, you know, a lot of cruises in my life. So I have actually very briefly been there, but not, like, as an adult. So I'm looking forward to actually seeing it. Well, we'll compare notes. You'll be there first. You can tell me where to go to. I I can't wait. Mm -hmm. I know the Pacific Northwest a little bit because I've been to Vancouver twice, but I've never actually been to Seattle. So I'm I'm very, very curious to go. In Charleston, remember, somebody recognized that was like, hey, I just saw Chris Cody, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, it was Seth. Seth Seth goes, (laughs) I've seen him multiple times. He goes, like, he's always here. That was was, (laughs) him. I go, wow, okay. So I texted you. I go, Charleston? You go, I've been once. He goes, yeah. this guy said he's seen you multiple times, he said, <laughs> which is a very funny line. Maybe he saw me on the same trip. I'm like, that's a good yeah. point. He saw me on a Thursday. He saw me on a Saturday. I've seen him multiple times, yeah. but it's yeah. been a three-day stretch. Charleston there's regular. A, yeah, there's Chris a Cody. Chris Cody again. <laughs> I did, and as I've said before, 30% of that trip was just to have a speaking point with Skipper. Like yeah. The next time I saw Skipper, I'm like, hey, I went to Charleston. I know, I know you're a North Carolina guy, but South Carolina, and it worked. I, I do believe, Adnan, oh. that that's a great food there, oh. and they... Uh, Charleston is fantastic. Uh, the, the people there are absolutely magnanimous. And, and I find the food to be spectacular. Spe- spectacular Skipper's Your favorite. John Africa. Skipper is so good, dude. Oh, it's I appreciate so good. I hope it gets in the limited, John. I, mean, I want to get in the limited roll call at the end of the year. Spectacular. Just the cut. Spectacular. Spectacular is his favorite adjective. He uses it all the time. If you do, if you do a drinking game with Skipper, every time this is spectacular, oh my God. You're drunk within minutes. So that's the news about Marty. That's the news about Pacino. Now we'll get to Robert De Niro about my father. As usual, Bob is the best part of one of these movies, which he's been making for about mm, 10, 15 years now. These rather stale, generic comedies. I actually had better high hopes for this one. I'm not sure why. I guess I just like the trail and I like a good Sebastian. comedy. But Sebastian. Sebastian. I go, listen, he's probably the best stand-up in America right now. So I'm like, all right, let's see what this goes. But it's a classic move of a stand-up who isn't a particularly good actor. He's just basically taking his act and putting it on a screen. It's pretty stale. It, it's repetitive. All the best jokes are in the trailer. You already know the trailer when his, when his shorts fall off and he's in the water. Uh, when he's mimicking De Niro's Italianisms, I'm like, yeah, those were all the best jokes in the trailer. One of the few bright spots, I, I don't think Maniscalco's a particularly good actor. He's literally just playing himself. I, I support his stand-up, but as an actor, no. Does he talk his, like, does he like, you yeah, believe he does the same this guy? Accent. You believe this guy? Yeah, yeah. You want Who is this guy all about? <laughs> yeah, he does the whole thing. There's, there's no acting. He's literally playing himself. My wife... She told me to grab the spaghetti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She told me. Like, you're right. That, that's very specific, this enunciation of words. 
Stand-up's great. The movie, not so much. I'm going to get two Maple Leafs. Uh, De Niro does his best. He obviously is always worth the price of admission. He's got that mugging face, scowl, angry. He's playing a hairdresser who uh, needs the support of his son, Sebastian Menescalco, who, because he's proposing to his all-American girlfriend. So the whole story is De Niro's going to give him his late wife's ring, but he insists on meeting the parents first. So it feels a lot like a retread of Meet the Parents which, of course, De Niro was in years ago, which was fantastic. So and a lot of the similar themes, right? Fish out of water, he's the Italian guy. It just seems like, I saw a couple of reviews that were bang on. Like, it seems like a script you'd read, like, in the 1960s. Like, what, what all-American wasp family would be like, oh, my God, he's Italian? No. Like, at this point, yeah. if it was an interracial marriage, perhaps. I'm like, oh, my God, she's Asian or she's black. Right, I'm like, who's Italian? like, oh, wait, what's their heritage? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, it just seems like such a stale concept, or it's so out of date. And from there, yeah. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think these people will be that offended that this guy's an Italian hairdresser. I really don't get it. Um, one of the few bright spots is the, the, uh, the parents in the, are very good. Uh, his potential in-laws. Kim Cattrall, who I haven't seen in years, Sex and the City. Apparently, she's going to be in the reboot. I don't follow these things, but somebody tweeted the other day, as you like it, she's going to be She's actually going to do it? She's going to do Sex and the City now? The reboot, she, yeah, as you like no, it. No, but she, but she didn't. Like, she was, like, famously not in the movie. Like, she had a falling out with them. She's back. Google wow. it right now. I saw something the other day. Like, she's going to be in season two. As you like, you're right. She had a big falling out. Her and Sarah Jessica Parker. But Kim Cattrall's back. She's not only in About My Father, but you'll see her in As You Like It. But the guy who was great in this, again, following the momentum of Succession, was my man David Rash. He plays Bill. He uh, he plays Carl in Succession. I, I don't know why. I just find him so funny. He's so entertaining. Um his mannerisms and such. And he's perfect as a waspish father. I mean, that was actually ideal casting in this movie. He's, his delivery of lines, like, again, I don't want to spoil anything, not that you should go see the movie, but Kim Cattrall at one point gets a haircut and <laughs> she basically looks like De Niro. And David Rash has the best line as Bill because he promises to make them dinner. And he goes, well, you know, if you look like an Italian man, you might as well eat like an Italian man. Like, his delivery is great. He reminds me a little bit, and this is the highest compliment I can give, a little bit of Phil Hartman, who's one of my all-time favorites, just with guys who have that great voice. David Rash has a great voice the way Phil Hartman did. I don't know if he can mimic it as well as Hartman did, all those impressions he would do, but he's really funny. But the movie's very watered down, very diluted, stale, out of touch, all those things. I would not recommend watching it. A couple reviews here. Odie Henderson, at least it's a mercifully short 89 minutes. Odie writes for the Boston Globe. And Michael O'Sullivan of the Washington Post. This is a sweet, mostly cute story about the importance of the people we're related to, peppered with some fairly broad and not especially hilarious yucks. My friend Tom Monfiletto messaged me. He said, this movie set back Italian culture at least 20 years. Um, and so I totally get where Tom is coming from. But I will give it two maple leaves. My wife thought it was better than I did. She was like, yeah, it was decent. I go, no, it wasn't very good. I just paid fourteen fifty for this movie, so I would avoid it. They're calling it a cameo. She mm. is going to appear in season two, but it just says her upcoming cameo in, mm. in just like that season two. All right. So she's back, but she's not really back. It's a yeah. drive-by. In the meantime, Spider-Man is back. I really enjoyed the first Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse. I thought it had incredible animation. It was fun. It was uh, quick on its feet, very deft. I enjoyed the editing, the pace of it. So now what happens with the second one? Well, this time, because you got to go bigger, which is not necessarily better, Movie's two hour and 20 minutes. I found it bloated. I thought there was too many multiple storylines. I still really like the animation. I think it's still clever and I think it's sharp, but I didn't enjoy it nearly as much as the first one. I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. What is um, notable beyond the fact it got rave reviews, uh, Liz Shannon Miller here of Consequence, plays with literally every possible form of animation to create a stunning spectacle that also manages to tell a smart, character-driven story. That's one of the ones that really liked it. My man Ty Burr was great. Two out of four stars. I knew we'd get a sequel eventually, but I didn't expect him to suck most of the joy out of it. 
Preach time for is the best. Odie Henderson, we just mentioned Boston Globe. Despite my aggravation, I can see there's much to recommend about Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. What's notable is this. I went to my theater there in Ridgewood, and I went afternoon show. My son, Adine, I invited a few of his friends. So three of his friends, plus my kids, Shaz and Maz. Yusuf didn't want to go. So six of us there, $80.50. We go outside. There's a huge, huge group of people. Like, oh, my God, the movie's going to sell out. This, this theater never sells out. It's Spider-Man. And I've already promised the other parents, don't worry, I'll drop your kids off after. I'm like, now we can't even get in the movie. Thankfully, one of the guys, I try to use my credit card, credit card's not working. I'm like, what? The machine's all faulty. It's a lot of kids, a lot of teenagers, loud, rambunctious. Good news is 15 minutes of trailers. We walk in just as the movie's starting. But it's a dull roar emanating from the back of the theater. All those teenagers are clearly not here to watch the movie. They're there to crack jokes and vape and be stupid or whatever it is. So it's actually <laughs> plaguing the enjoyment of the film because I'm fairly at the front. Like I'm in like row H, and it's a pretty big theater. So let's say they're an R or S. But they're loud. So when you're trying to watch a movie and you just hear constant talking, like this is definitely impacting my enjoyment of the movie. Having said that, I'm more there for my kids. I'm not really into Spider-Man. That's my brother's deal. So I'm like, whatever. I'm just going to pretend like I'm enjoying this. They're eating the, I got, everyone got their slush. Everyone got their popcorn. Great. Kids, by the way, incredibly polite. They kept trying to play for the sacks. Mr. Verk, I go, no, I got it, guys. It's fine. No, Mr. Verk, I can pay for my own slushie. No, kid, I got it. You're here with my friends. We're good. How does this work with, like, do you ever, like, ask parents for money? No, this this is now, I think this is the second or third time. So one of the parents actually messaged me and goes, hey, can we pay this time? I said, absolutely not. I said, I I got it. So then the kid, one of the kids, Brendan's a sweet kid, as he was leaving the car, he tried to pull that one on me. He just threw the 20. He goes, see, Mr. Brick, I go, no way, no way, you're knowing this is not, no, take your 20 back. No chance. Like, that was a a crafty move. He just just threw it at me. What's with the... Defiantly refusing the money. Why won't you just take the money from the people? Because I'm treating their kids, right? It's my friends' kids. Okay. So you know, I'm I'm treating them. I don't. I don't. You know, if it'd be nice if they reciprocate next time. Want to take my kid to a movie? That would be nice. But in the meantime, I'm kind of the movie dad. So when I do it, I don't want anyone feeling like they can pay their way, especially for a slush, right? Like the the ticket is. Whatever, twelve bucks, twelve fifty. So that that I definitely add. Then the slushy. If they six listen bucks. though, and they hear you counting it, like you're like eighty eighty dollars fifty cents for all the tickets. Like you're documenting each amount. It seems. But they're like not if listening they... to the podcast. If okay. they were, then yes. But no one's listening to this podcast. Let's be honest. <laughs> if Natalie even Marie didn't get us like a hundred thousand downloads, no one's listening to this podcast. So the tickets were eighty dollars. We got a little bump. We got the Nat- We got the Eva Marie bump. Did we? Like forty two extra people listen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I, mean, I don't know, man. And we got our own following. We don't need her bump. Uh, the tickets were $80.50. That's me and six kids. And then the popcorn and slushies, I wasn't sure. But the refill, the popcorn, always clutch. The slushies are like six bucks. I'm like, whatever. You just accept it going in. Anyways, the dull roar continues. These kids will not. And then it was incredible. I just heard an adult man's voice go, that's it. Everyone out. Like scream top of his lungs. I'm like, oh, my God. And I didn't want to turn back because it's like, you know, when someone just got chastised, just got told. And then I hear some barking back about, no, no, we, we just want to go watch The Little Mermaid. He's like, out, everyone out. I'm like, wow. So I give it like 10 minutes because then by then the popcorn so I'm like, don't worry, kids, I'll go get a refill for us. I Wait, go back, that was like, that was an employee saying that? Just listen. So I go, okay, I have sorry, popcorn. Sorry. You like to jump the story. Like, I'm getting the story. Trust me. So I have sure popcorn. I I'm going back to get a refill. I go back there and I see a lot of the kids outside now in the lobby. I see them outside. So I was like, what happened? And I could tell, because I'm like, it's got to be the guy. Because the kids are like 17, 18, the ushers, and the ones taking the tickets. But this guy looks at the other guy. So I look at him, I go, what happened? He's like, <laughs> he looks so aggrieved. He's like, I had enough. And I was like, no, I, I, I got to hear you, dude. I go, they were talking the whole time. I couldn't, even, I couldn't even watch the movie. And I said, but how do you know who's talking? Like, I would never know who's talking. Like, you, right. you just kicked out. I'm looking, I go, that's at least 25, 30 people right now I see standing outside, calling their parents, trying to get a ride. They're, they're not old enough to drive. 
And he goes, no, we, and the other girls are like, no, no, we have a system. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, we just, we just kept going in and finding out who's, who's talking, who are the perpetrators. I go, that's incredible, because now I go, it's dead silent in there. Like, now I'm actually watching the movie. But I said, you kicked out 25 to 30 people. I imagine the guy who's like, hey, it wasn't me. She goes, no, no, we're aware of who all the people are. I'd be like, I'm not leaving. I haven't been talking. You got the wrong person. I would right? be such a jerk, even right. if I was talking. <laughs> I'd be right. like, yeah, this try is... kicking me out. Give me my money back if you're kicking me out of this theater. But to your point, think about it. These people are obviously rude and obnoxious. So why are they now going to play ball? Like, I'm with right. you. I'm like, wait, like, there's more of us. You're trying to kick me out. There's one of you, old man. There's 20 yeah. of us. I'm not going anywhere. I paid my ticket. I'm loud. I don't care. Mm-hmm. So I was actually impressed he pulled it off. I mean, I guess it's because he screamed so loud. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was deafening how loud he yelled. Like, like, I don't, what are you going to do? You're not going to call Paul Blart? I've never seen that. I mean, I can't remember the last time I was at a movie with a bunch of kids being loud, but I've never seen, like... Any kind of altercations at a movie theater. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, it wasn't an altercation. That would be, I always think that, I guess it's a verbal, right. verbal altercation means it's going back and forth. It was right. just one shout and that's it. Like if the kids start <laughs> fighting all, back, it's different. Single it's, file, they all just walked out. Like, okay. Sorry. That's why I, I didn't turn around. Like when you hear someone yell, I'm like, oh my God. Like after the dean's like, hey, remember that guy yelled? I'm like, I don't want to turn around because I don't want to get yelled at. I'm like, I heard it. Something <laughs> happened. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to even turn. Like just something, something's going on. I'll figure you're an adult up. there, but you're like, I'm not looking. I'm yeah, not looking I'm at, at that guy. Just stir shit ahead, guys. Enjoy the movie. <laughs> Because I, I just can't believe he pulled it off. Like 25 to 30 people. And, he, and then one of the kids walks back. And he's like, can I at least get a refund? He's like, no. I'm like, all right. I'm like, balls in the kid. Like, wow. oh, at least give me my 14.50 back. He's like, no. Nope. Yeah. And now here's the thing. What about repeat offenders? Like, how are you going to know these it's, kids are going to come back next Saturday? They're going to be the same seems, kids. You can't keep track of It seems like an things. odd process. It's an odd process. To kick them out again. Anyways, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was Spider-Man's Into the Spider-Verse. It was all right. If you like superheroes, my brother loves that stuff. I'm sure he took his kids, loved it. It's just not my jam. I might just stop reviewing these movies. That's, 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 <laughs> my, that's my, like, there's so many. You know, I'm going to watch one more. I'll watch The Flash because I love Michael Keaton and Michael Shannon, and they're both in it. That's coming out in a couple weeks. I saw a preview for that, and it's just like the things they have this Michael Keaton Batman doing, yeah. it's like he's got to be close to 70. Like, <laughs> what are we doing yeah. to this man? <laughs> You're right. He's 70 years old. Like, I think he looks great, but to your point, like, he's a superhero, like, he's Batman again. Who doesn't love Michael Keaton, as we've said here on the podcast, but he's back. A 70-year-old, and he's doing Beetlejuice too. Like, this must happen. Like, you're 70 years old. Like, whatever. He's 71 years old. It's crazy. I don't even need him to do any fighting. Just just walk in and be like, I'm Batman. <laughs> like, just let me see you. Do the voice. Like, that's all we need. Just play the hits. I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. But we'll find <laughs> out when The Flash comes out in a couple weeks. Uh, we'll take a quick break. Come back with our guest, Steve James. The documentarian behind Hoop Dreams, a new doc on Bill Walton. As Chris noted, he's going to love this pop quiz I give him. I mean, at the end, God, he was he was enamored of that. Favorite place to go, favorite food to eat. You're going to love it. Steve James coming up. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What a pleasure to talk to Steve James today. He has made one of the greatest documentaries ever. It is called Hoop Dreams. You should all see it. If you haven't seen it, you should be ashamed of yourself. He also made a film called Life Itself, which was my favorite documentary of that year. I was stunned. It wasn't nominated for an Academy Award because I thought it was incredible. I've also seen, seen Steve's uh, documentary called Stevie, which I watched at the Toronto Film Festival, which was very powerful. He now has another excellent documentary out. It's all about Bill Walton, you sports fans. It's called The Luckiest Guy in the World, 30 for 30 from ESPN, June 6th, 7 o'clock Eastern at debuts. It's four parts. I've already seen the first part. Steve, I'm a huge fan, as you can tell. It's great to chat with you. Great to chat with you. Stevie, wow. Pulling Stevie up. That's great. Well, what was it? You know, let's go right into Stevie. Let's go there. Because with Hoop Dreams, you just hear your voice. And, of course, the story of William Gates, Arthur Age is amazing. I remember with Stevie, I was like, oh, now that that's who Steve James is. Like, I didn't, I didn't know who you were. And you really made yourself a part of the story. And I remember thinking, like, I felt so sorry for you. Like you had such guilt in that documentary about your relationship with Stevie. I said, man, I wish I could give this guy a hug. It's okay, Steve. You did your best. <laughs> Oops, sorry. <laughs> Let's get into uh, Bill Walton. You know, I watched the first part and it was amazing because the thing I can never get over about Bill Walton is he had a speech impediment. This is a guy who is so loquacious, so articulate, and yet he had a terrible speech impediment as a child. It's like, um, you know, somebody who's a terrible athlete becoming a world-class athlete one day. You go, how does that happen? So how did, how did that happen? How did Bill Walton go from a speech impediment to someone who is known for being so loquacious? I mean, it really started with Ralph Lawler, the, the, uh, who was the announcer for the Clippers at the time. After Bill retired, I mean, retired because he, he could no longer play. He just physically couldn't play. In the docuseries, you get this story. Ralph ran into Bill at a 7-Eleven, and Bill was at wit's end. And it just popped into Ralph's head, why don't you try broadcasting? Because he, he knew Bill well uh, from his years at the Clippers, and he knew what a great personality Bill had. But And Bill, you know, was like, you got to be kidding me i've got to start but it inspired bill to go deal with the stutter finally in a, in a meaningful way and the the legendary yankee new york broadcaster marty glickman uh helped bill a lot by giving him some real guidelines on on how to get past the stutter and he talks about this in the, in the docuseries and bill just religiously worked at it he religiously works at it to this day you know it, he will tell you I am a stutterer, you know, to this day, even though you see so little evidence of that, um, you know, in him today. His friends like to say that Bill couldn't talk for the first half of his life and he hasn't stopped talking since. <laughs> Terrific line. And I love this stuff. Again, I've only seen the first episodes before. I will watch the rest of it. But his mom is still alive, which was great. I, I, I was so happy to see his mom is still there and him, him talking with his parents who are not sports fans, but very, very loving, which reminds me of my own parents and how his mom taught him to read for pleasure. And he said, yeah, I still do that to this day. I said, I love that. And he was so skinny at one point, you know, he said, I want to have like a diet, like a plant. 
it'll just be air and sunshine, and then still need to tell him, oh, but Bill, there's also like seeds and soil that also gives you nutrients. It's fascinating guy, Steve. Yeah, well, he's, uh, yeah, he's quite a character. Um, you know, his mom passed away since we did that interview, and I know for Bill, it's it's really great to not just have her in the in the film, but to have that footage of, of the two of them together. He's talking about Wooden's Pyramid of Success. There's a great sequence in your doc, and you see each of the sons talking like, oh my God, Pyramid of Success, here we go. He'd write it in the lunchbox, you know, he'd put it in the, he'd, he'd just signs everywhere with the Pyramid of Success. And his line, Walden's line about Wooden is amazing. He said he's the second greatest trash talker ever. And he said, these guys are never satisfied how leaders are. I would never have said John Wooden is a great trash talker. What a line. Yeah, well, it's it's a yeah, it's a, a it's not known about Wooden, but I mean, he you, you'll see some evidence of it in some exchanges that we have, you know, uh, that we were able to get a hold of between the two of them, where Wooden is trash talking him a little bit, but yeah, Wooden Wooden had a had a incredibly uh, strong sense of humor and a way of putting you down very humorously, and he was he you know among his players, he was known to be a serious trash talker during games. That little rolled up program he had, uh, you know, if you saw him on TV, you thought maybe he was shouting instructions to his team. No, he was trash talking the other team. <laughs> Grateful Dead, you always know that with Bill Wall and the synonymous with him. At one point, uh, the members of the Grateful Dead are talking about it. He goes, well, I don't know if he's our biggest fan, but he's our tallest fan for sure. And they got the drum set that he can play because he's always been the Grateful Dead. And I believe it's his second wife who also is a big Grateful Dead fan. He goes, well, thank we have that kinship. What is it about the Grateful Dead that Bill Walton finds so irresistible? I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm asking myself that question. I mean, I, I like the Dead. I think they're good. But, um, you know, he's been to over a thousand concerts. Uh, and, and when you say, how could you possibly go to a thousand dead con concerts from any band he says well i've watched well over a thousand basketball games in my life and i keep watching them he, he says every concert is different just like every basketball game is different so there's something about that group speaks to his soul but there's also i think about the way in which they it's a scene you know being at a dead concert is a scene it's an experience it's not just music and i think bill really likes that yeah, he's definitely along with uh, Stu Gotts, the biggest Grateful Dead fans out there. We're talking to Steve James, the luckiest guy in the world, which is what Bill Walton always says about himself. It's going to be on ESPN four-part series, 30 for 30, June 6, 7 o'clock Eastern. His feet, does he have the worst feet of any athlete known to man? Yes. Yeah, he. it's really unfortunate because his career was so limited by the structural inefficiencies of these feet on this very big body. You know, I think... His feet are very narrow, um, and, and yeah, he just wasn't made for the pounding of this sport, and it really didn't become totally clear until he got to the pros, you know, because the college game, you know, they play 30 games a year back then, and then he gets to the pros, and it's an 82-game schedule, and it just it, it all just uh, fell apart for him. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the great what-if could have been scenarios, but it's impossible to speculate, but it feels like if Walton was healthy, it would have been an all-time great, right? I think, I think without question. I mean, Larry Bird says in the in the series later, when Bill was playing for the Celtics, he played on that great '85 '86 championship team and won Sixth Man of the Year award. Larry Bird says in the series that if he had not had an injury plagued career, we would be talking about him among the greats. And I said, the great big men, and he goes, no, the greats, wow. and. 
I, I, that's how Larry Bird views Walton. And, you know, Larry Bird is not a guy that throws around compliments easily. And I think he, he sincerely believes that was Bill's potential had he not been injured so much. Walton con- consistently refers to himself as the luckiest guy in the world. What, why does he feel so lucky considering the fact he's had to deal with considerable adversity in his life? Well, I think that, you know, I think to me, you know, I think it's part of his mantra of, of really how he has coped these years with with the misfortune that he's gone through. And, you know, he talks in the docuseries about sort of getting this epiphany one day after he had recovered from the debilitating back problems he had where he thought he'd never walk again. And he was even suicidal. And he talks frankly about that. He had an epiphany one day when he was in his gym at home working out again and just thinking like, I never thought this was going to be possible for myself. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. So it's become his mantra. It's become the thing he says the most. It's why we titled it the film. We obviously look at the title in a layered way because he has clearly not been the luckiest guy <laughs> in the world, but it is part of how he has chosen to to cope with his life. You know, I'm of the age, I, I obviously respect Bill Walton as a player, but I will know him more as a broadcaster. And just the chemistry with Steve Snapper Jones, the great repartee back and forth. And it was funny, when I worked at ESPN, if I was in the studio and Walton was doing the game, inevitably someone would go, oh my God, yes, Walton's doing the game. And inevitably someone would go, ah, oh, crap, Walton's doing the game. He's so polarized, and the people that love him go, he's so funny, and he's talking about, you know, where do how do trees grow? And other people go, God, this guy's insufferable, just shut up. How self-aware is Walton of how polarizing he is. Oh, I think he's completely aware. And and in episode four, we we dig into his broadcast career some. And, you know, we have some pretty good sport with it, you know, because how, how can you not how can you not have fun with that? But, uh, you know, we have a Twitter montage that shows just how polar opposite the responses are to him as a broadcaster. And and he's he's well aware of it. I think he I think he's decided that this is who he is. And he's going to have his fans and he's going to have his detractors, but he's going to be himself. And that's just who yet. I mean, I remember the first time I saw him announcing games and I was struck by how opinionated he was because I had always known him as an athlete who barely gave interviews to the to the uh, press. You know, he was such a quiet, uh, withdrawn almost athlete, especially in his UCLA years and his early years in Portland, that it's really surprised me to see just how opinionated he was. It's funny, one of his kids is talking about the fact, like, his hyperbole is a part of who he is. Like, you'll be sitting with him watching a game and go, that's the greatest rebound I've ever seen in my life. You're like, come on, Dad, settle down. But that, that is authentic, which is what we want in our broadcasters more than anything, right? Authenticity. Bill Walton is certainly that. He is exactly who he is, whether he's on the air or in his home. The luckiest guy in the world, 30 for 30, ESPN, June 6, 7 Eastern, four-part series from the great Steve James. I have to talk about Hoop Dreams with you, um, and I credit Siskel and Ebert because they really championed the doc. And I remember David Letterman at the Oscars making a joke about the fact Hoop Dreams wasn't nominated. It became a real cause celebre. So now we've had so much time. Looking back, is it better that Steve James's landmark documentary was ignored because it literally caused such a kerfuffle? Everyone said, you have to watch Hoop Dreams. It's the best film of 1994. Or looking back, do you wish you could have been nominated and won the Oscar that you rightfully deserved? Yeah, you know, I mean, of course, it would be great to have the Oscar. But I think it's I think it's undeniably true that that the snub that of Hoop Dreams back then uh, led to it being more of a success than winning the Oscar for a documentary would have. Because back then, winning the docu for the Oscar documentary, for the documentary, 
was fairly meaningless, right. um, to, you know, in terms of any kind of public interest. So, so I think it was better for the film. And frankly, I've got, I think I've gotten way more love over the years um, from people because of that and continue to this day, even in this interview from you, um, for having not won an Oscar than for if I'd ever won one. So I'm totally fine with it. White Man Can't Jump, you know, just in a reboot. I hear it's atrocious. So whenever anyone tells me what's the best basketball, you always say Hoop Dreams. And if they haven't seen it, I'm like, that, that's on you. That's, that's the greatest basketball you'll ever see. What has ever become of Arthur Agee and William Gates? Are you in touch with those guys still? I am. Uh, William is, is uh, living in uh, San Antonio. He has four children uh, who are all adults now. Three of his boys played basketball. His daughter <laughs> worked, works as a dental hygienist. He's married to Catherine, the young girl that was his girlfriend in the film and the mother of their first daughter, Alicia. They're, they're still together. I tell them they should write a book on child rearing uh, <laughs> because they're so good at what they do. And and Arthur is is very much, he's got a clothing line, a Hoop Dreams clothing line that he, forever he's been trying to get off the ground. And he's he's had some good fortune with that. We told him to just go forth and prosper with it, do whatever you can. <laughs> and And he does a lot of speaking gigs to young people here in Chicago to this day where he talks about not only his life, but just you know, the values and what you need to do to get by and get through it all. Uh, he, you know, he's very committed to helping the kids in the city of Chicago um, be successful. Life itself, I thought was brilliant because I grew up uh, reading the reviews of Roger Ebert. I still have the Roger Ebert hard books. And, and when I first saw you were making a document, I said, that makes sense. Hoop Dreams, like Ebert champion, like nobody else. I'm sure Steve uh, was appreciative of that. But beyond that relationship, it's an incredible documentary because there's so much to Ebert's life. Um, his alcoholism, when he, when he quit drinking, uh, him and Chaz, their relationship is beautiful. Obviously, when he got ill. But the stuff with Gene was, was so powerful. Um, the fact that Roger didn't know that Gene was sick, I couldn't believe it. And, like, it was so impactful watching. I think Gene's widow was when saying, you know, Gene didn't want to tell anybody. He wasn't, you know, just he wanted to just tell immediate people. And Chaz was like, Roger, Roger was crushed that, that he didn't know. I thought that was so impactful. Yeah, yeah. That, that was an amazing project to get to work on. Um, you know, I didn't know... I didn't know Roger that well, even though we both lived in Chicago and he had really championed the film, like you said, and championed other work that I did after that. Um, I didn't know him that well, but I got to know him extremely well in the in the brief months he was with us while we were making the film. You know, he died partway into the making of the film. But what an extraordinary guy and what an extraordinary life. And, you know, it, it, to tie it back to Bill for a second, it's sort of like, you know, both both of these are guys who are known for one thing, which is in Bill's case, basketball, and in and in Roger's case, himself as a reviewer of movies. But both of these guys had lives that were much fuller and have lived lives that were much fuller than just that. That's not just what defines them. Yeah, and Roger was just such a prolific writer. Like he was, he was like it wasn't just movies. He was just he just loved writing, loved reading. It was like to the end, this guy was still like just pounding out that ten thousand word essays and thoughts. And I love what Chad said. She goes, you know, don't feel sorry for him. Like he's always been interested in death. Like he's, he's like so he was kind of excited in some ways. Like I can't wait to see what happens next. I've always wanted to know about death. Your uh, your recall of this movie is impressive. I have to say. Feels like you just watched it. Yeah, I haven't seen it since I saw it in the New York City theater when it came out, but I loved it. I thought it was extraordinary. It was really, really powerful. And uh, God, it was, it was. Again, you, don't, you appreciate. There's so much more facts of these people's lives, which again brings me to Stevie. So watching that hoop dreams again, you're just a narrator. With Stevie, you're very much a part of it. 
Um, and it was a very personal story. And you felt like you were dealing with a lot of guilt and, and the fact you let Stevie down and stuff. Did you find that process cathartic, making that documentary? I, I mean, it, it was. It, it was it was the hardest film I've ever made to this day. And I don't want to make a harder one. Uh, <laughs> I have no desire to make a harder film than Stevie. But yeah, I think I think making a film helped me come to terms with my own feelings about Stevie and, and how his life had gone and, and what role I had played in his life or not played in his life. And that's very much, the film is very much a portrait of him and his, and the people in his life, but it's also that story as well. Well, it's, it's amazing stories. You are an amazing storyteller, clearly one of our premier documentarians. What's up next for Steve James? Something sports related or something outside of sports? I don't know. I got I got a few little irons in the fire. I can't really say for sure what's going to happen, but some are sports related and some aren't. I like to I like to keep doing different stuff. All right, a couple more rapid fire then. Best place you've ever been? Best place I've ever been? Just period? Yeah, just in general. Because I see you traveling. Where where where's places you go in? That was. Oh wow. Well, I mean, Chicago's my favorite city. I have to say, <laughs> I live here. Um, <laughs> you know, we went to Senegal. My daughter was working uh, for the Peace Corps. We went to Senegal for two and a half weeks and saw a lot of Senegal. That was an extraordinary experience. That leaps to mind. <laughs> we're never going to get a better answer than Senegal and Chicago, so we're going to stick with that. Toughest interview subject you've ever encountered? Toughest interview subject. Oh, well, in some ways, it was right up there it was Gene Siskel's wife. And the reason is, is that she wanted, not because she was uncooperative at all, she was completely cooperative, and she was a great interview. It's just that she wanted to get it perfect. She's a perfectionist. She would start an answer, and I'd be sitting here listening to her answer and going, this is great, this is great. And then she would have one small little trip up, and she would say, oh, I have to start over. And I'd be like, no, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You can, we can edit it. You can just pick it up. She was not having it. She'd start over and say the whole answer again. So what what would have been at most a two-hour interview ended up being a five-hour interview because she was such a perfectionist. Wow, that's interesting. Easiest interview subject. Who's somebody you literally turn the camera on and you go, this, this is making my life so easy? Robert Parrish from this film. When, <laughs> when you get to episode four, yeah. if, you, if you've not spent any time around Robert Parrish and you only know Robert Parrish as a rather stoic, yes. but very talented basketball player, it will be a revelation to you. It's the most hilarious, full-of-life guy you could ever imagine. And I think it comes through beautifully in episode four when he's talking about Bill and when Bill was with the Celtics. A couple more. Since you're a Chicago guy, best deep dish. And I know most Chicagoans don't eat a lot of deep dish. It's normally what tourists do when they come. But if you are going to indulge, Lou Malnati's, Giordano's, where are we going? Lou Malnati's, for sure. They have better crust. And lastly, who are you cheering for, heat or nuggets? Oh, well, you know, I mean, this is going to sound like a cop-out. I'm just happy both those teams made it. Mm. Truly happy both. I, I'll, I'll make a choice, but I am truly happy both those teams make it. Why? Because Jimmy Butler was a bull, yep. Yep. and I want him to win a championship. And the, the Nuggets have never won anything, so I want, I want them to win a championship. So I'm going to be fine whichever way it goes. But I and I may not know who I'm cheering for until I start watching the game. This is one of those kind of situations. But I have a feeling I'm going to pull for the Nuggets because the Heat have won championships and the Nuggets haven't won any. I love Jamal Murray being Canadian, so I, I am rooting for him for the Nuggets. Jamal Murray is is off the charts, and Jokic isn't too bad either. Um, a, a lot of people say 
he he's the best passing big man since Bill Walton, and I, that's absolutely true. And he is he is such an, a, a consummate player. Um, it, he's a joy to watch. He certainly is. The Joker, two-time MVP, and some say should have been the third MVP, especially if you saw him beating the playoffs. The luckiest guy in the world, 30 for 30, ESPN, June 6th, 7 o'clock Eastern, four-part documentary from the incredible Steve James talking about Bill Walton. Steve, this was a real pleasure. I hope you know what a fan I am of your work, and I look forward to much more work down the pipe. Well, you clearly are a fan, and it's been a real joy talking to you. Thank you. A real pleasure bringing T.J. Newman right now. She has an incredible backstory, which I cannot wait for her to share with you if you're not familiar with it. I was not myself. She's a flight attendant. She's writing a book called Falling, which is fantastic. Number two in the New York Times bestseller list. She's writing it while she's on these cross-country flights on cocktail napkins. She gets turned down by 41 prospective publishers. Eventually, finally, someone says yes. And as I said, the book is a runaway success. She sells, I believe, seven-figure deal for the movie rights as well. Now she's got her second book coming out, Drowning, and I believe that already also has a seven-figure movie rights attached to it. The book is fantastic. I just started reading Drowning, and I just finished following. All I can tell you is T.J. Newman is a real talent, and obviously somebody who is a real story of perseverance. T.J., it's great to see you. Congratulations. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on. Um, I wrote a book once, and I got rejected by, I think, I got a, I got a literary agent. I got turned down by at least five or six agents. Eventually, this guy liked it, and he, he knew my work from ESPN, and he said, I like the book. It's definitely... <clears throat> it's, it's cool. It's different. I'm like, okay. So he starts pitching to different people. And I think we got to maybe seven agents, seven publishers, excuse me. They all said, um, I like the idea, but I just don't think his writing is good enough. Then I had seven people who were like, I like his writing. I just don't think the idea is very marketable. And then eventually it just fizzled. So I still have the book. And then I read your backstory. And I go, you know what? I got to go pitch it to 27 more people because I got to get this thing published. That's amazing that you never gave up hope. Exactly. Yeah. You got to get back out there and, and put that thing back out there. You said, what, seven rejections? All oh, that's nothing. You're it just was, getting. It was about 15 total, but you're right. It was seven for one reason, seven for the other reason. But you, I got to get at least 25 more to get to where you were at. That's amazing. How did you keep going? It only takes one yes, right? You can you can stack the nose as high as you want. It only takes one yes. And I'll tell you what, all 42 of those rejections I felt I and I was very close to doing what you did and just saying, you know what, maybe I should listen to these messages because <laughs> clearly they um, are the people that know what's good and they are making a fairly, um, you know, unanimous call that this is not good. So I should probably listen to this. But every time that I almost pulled the plug, I would say to myself, I didn't come this far just to come this far. And I keep going. It's amazing because I know how hard it is. God, it's insanely tough to write a book. Like you write it. And I remember I hired this uh, woman. I can't remember her name. No, she did like a line edit. So you know what that means. You're literally going through it line by line. My agent, Josh Gettler, Gessler, was amazing because I'm sure just like the people you worked with, he was like, no, let's change this. Let's reformat this. Like he, he got his hands in there and got in the muck. So like it really is. I, I love I was reading your um, acknowledgments in the for falling and you wrote something about that first draft was rough and it's true if you if you read your first draft with the finished book is at times it's almost unrecognizable like the heart of it is there the guts is there but literally the the painstaking meticulous nature of a writer it's uh it must be exhausting but i think equally rewarding as well 
Absolutely to all of that. You know, my first book, I wrote over 30 drafts of that book before it came to be the finished product that it is. Um, when I wrote Falling, my first book, though, I I was what's called a pantser. I wrote by the seat of my pants. I just sort of <laughs> sat down and started writing and figured out the story as I went along. Well, with the second book, um, I knew I wouldn't have the luxury of years to write and 30 some drafts. So I became what's called a plotter, which is somebody who, you know, really outlines and knows exactly what they're going to write, you know, before they write the book. So yeah. I knew the premise. I knew exactly what the book was going to be. It was going to be the story of a flight that crashes into the ocean six minutes after takeoff. Then, you know, after the passengers evacuate and there's an engine explosion, you know, the ones who didn't get out in time, they, they closed the doors, but it was too late. And the flood flames, uh, the, the plane floods and sinks which 12 people trapped inside, including a father and his 11-year-old daughter. And so then their only hope is with a rescue team on the surface led by her mother and his soon-to-be ex-wife. And I knew that premise before I ever put pen to paper to write Drowning. And I, I wrote out, you know, extensive chapter outlines. I knew exactly what I was doing. And it, it got there quite a bit faster than the first book did. Well, it's amazing because... <laughs> I can't imagine anyone ever turned down the book. Don Winslow, who's a friend of yours and a friend of mine, just by virtue of the fact I like his work, I've had him on the podcast. He messaged me, I think last week, and goes, hey, I heard you're having TJ on. I'm like, yeah. And his blurb alone was amazing. I was like, yeah, who turns this down? A bullet, this was for Fallout. We'll get to drowning in a second. But a bullet train of a thriller with incredible tension and personal stakes. The real engine of this stunning and relentless book is how far would you go to save your family? I read Falling with my heart in my throat. This is Jaws at 35,000 feet. And even better... On the inside part of the uh, the book jacket, I mean, I, I don't know who turns this down in a pitch meeting. You just boarded a flight to New York. There are 143 other passengers on board. What you don't know is that 30 minutes before the flight, your pilot's family was kidnapped. For his family to live, everyone on your plane must die. The only way the family will survive is if the pilot follows his orders and crashes the plane. Enjoy the flight. But, like, it's a great idea for book. And then obviously your writing is strong enough to can carry it. And because you were a flight attendant for 10 years, you know the ins and outs of this. That, to me, I thought was the most important. While I was reading it, okay, she's got a great idea. Lots of authors have great ideas. She's a good writer. Okay, I'm sure she's harnessed her crap. But because you know this world, that's what I took from reading the book. Like, she knows exactly what the flight attendants would do, what the protocol is, what the first officer does. Like, at one point, one of the passengers says, well, let's just, let's just storm the cockpit. And like, no, this isn't. You know, the scene in United 93, like after 9-11, you can't do that anymore. Like, I think it was so smart how you were able to use your own personal experiences to make it really authentic. Thank you. Yes. And I, and I think that people have really loved sort of that behind the scenes look at aviation because it's a really complicated and complex and detailed industry that's frankly, pretty hard to understand unless you're living it every day. And I was a flight attendant for 10 years. My mom was a flight attendant. My sister's a flight attendant. We call it the family business. So I know that world backwards. And it's been a real privilege to be able to sort of bring to the general public, you know, a, a authentic look at sort of how it is on the plane. How it, what do the flight attendants talk about behind the galley curtain during the flight? What is that, what is that like for us? And it's been, it's been a real treat to, to bring that forward. And well, I have so many people say to me, you know, I never, I never really realized how many responsibilities the flight attendants had. I never knew how well-trained they are. It's increased my respect for flight attendants. And when I hear that, I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm as happy as can be. Oh, oh big time. This is, we've come a long way from the pretty little stewardess. Like, no, these people are well-trained in matters of literally life and death. And 
I like the point you make about how when there's any sort of turbulence, they'll look at the flight attendant like, is this normal? And you have to give that calm, reassuring look like, it's okay, guys, hang in there, even though you are also, you know, not feeling great sometimes. And I think you said, I read this in an interview, I think, for people about your, your parlor trick would be trying to guess what drinks people would have on the flight, which was hilarious to me. Absolutely. It is my it is my party trick. I can usually guess. So let me guess. With you, I would say, I would guess you're a coffee drinker. I'm not. I know. It's shocking. Rusty. Yeah, I'm, I'm very anti-coffee. Matter of fact, Chris, if he pops back on the Zoom, we did a whole thing why I hate coffee. Because people, when they drink coffee, do three things. Do the squint, they do the slurp, and then they do the ah. So I hate coffee. I've never drank it. On occasion, I will have a tea. My family's Pakistani. Tea's pretty big in the brown community. But if I was on your flight, I would probably, I mean, I would try to go water to be healthy, but my, my drink of choice is a Pepsi. And we're anti-coffee. We're very anti-coffee. Yeah, we hate coffee. I know you're shocked because I'm so caffeinated. You're like, oh, it's because of coffee. I'm like, no, no, I hate coffee. I don't. Never. I'm glad we didn't have this conversation ahead of time because I'm very pro-coffee, so I might not have made it on the pod if, if, if we would have had this, you know, as one of the interview questions beforehand. <laughs> it's a very polarizing take. I've probably lost listeners because of my coffee take. But uh, What I love about it is that your take is not actually about the beverage, but about the, the user experience of the <laughs> beverage, which is hilarious. I love that. A hundred percent. It's the squint. It's a... I'm the, I go, no, I don't need, I don't need the pomp and circumstance. Just drink your, and I also hate the thermos. Like you're walking around their thermos. Oh God, going to have that cup of gel. I'm like, I don't, you know, I don't care about a two liter bottle of Pepsi. Like I just, when I want Pepsi, I have it. I don't need it. I don't need it at all times. Um, it is a good parlor trick. I also suffer on a somewhat serious note, a little bit of claustrophobia on flights. So I'm always the guy, if there's, if it's just, Obviously, first class, if MLB Network sends me, then it's great. I have no issues at all. I'm, I feel fantastic. I'll fly around the world. If it's two people, no problem. What happens is if I'm in coach and it's three and I'm the window seat, I can't do it. One time I sat in the flight and I was just like, I feel so confined. I got to get out of here. And I started turning to the person next to me and I go, I, I don't mean to make you nervous, but I'm, I'm getting a little anxious. She goes, okay. I go, if I sit in the middle seat, I'm okay. I go, do you mind switching seats? And she's like, yeah, no problem. And I think most people are pretty good about it. I think if you can see... The look of anxiety in a person's face. Like, you, you look uncomfortable. This is a four-hour flight. You want the middle seat rather than the window seat. I'm like, yeah. You prefer the middle seat? Over a window if there's three. Let's be clear. What here. a there's, monster are you? If there's two seats, I have no issue with either. If there's three, I can't go win. And I, and I guess I try to think about it in my head. I'm like, I guess the thought would be if I needed to run out, I wouldn't be able to get through two people. It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But have you ever had an experience like that? Someone kind of feeling a little claustrophobic on a plane? I'm sure you did. Oh, sure. People get claustrophobic all the time. I just want to say, though, no coffee and middle seat preference. You are very interesting. You've got a few, like, fun facts about you that are like, huh. I'm, I'm still first class preference, if we're being honest. I, that, that would be my first preference. But I'm, when I'm flying with my family, my wife and kids, yeah, I, I actually, I mean, listen, aisle is preferred. But if it's window or middle, I'll take middle any day of the week. No problem. And I'm sure the passengers around you are perfectly fine with that. I'm sure that woman was like, is this a true question? Like, what? what is, I don't understand. No one, this is the first time anyone has ever asked to sit in the middle in the history of, of aviations. <laughs> but that's why when I was reading your book, I said, okay, I don't really have a fear of flying. And by the way, if you do, TJ's a brilliant writer, but don't read falling. If you have a fear of flying, you'll never get another plane again. But it's brilliantly written and it's so well done. And then I start reading Drowning and I see what that concept is. And as you just told us, it's people underwater. And I go, oh my God, this, this is... This this woman just knows terror. But what I'm curious is this. You have a hit book. Everyone knows it's a huge hit. You sold the movie rights seven figures, right? Do I have that right? Correct. So Both the, of them. Yeah. So the follow-up, I can imagine everyone's thinking, all right, TJ, you, you did it. Right? You, you unlocked the secret. You cracked the code. 
the second book, can we do something similar to the first, but still different? Was that at all a conversation or did you just have this idea all along and you go, you know what? It's playing with the conventions of what I did, but it's extrapolating in a different manner. How did that come to be? Oddly enough, kind of exactly as you, as you just put it, I sort of had that conversation with myself in the very early days of figuring out what that book would be. And I didn't know what the story was going to be, but the only thing I knew was it needed to be similar, but bigger. It needed to be a, another big ensemble uh, of characters, needed to be on a plane, but everything about it had to be bigger. Higher stakes, more action, more drama, more tension, more heart, more emotion. Everything had to go bigger. And so I started going back sort of through the ideas in my head of, you know, well, what else, what, what other ideas did I have at work? Because I had the idea for falling at work on a red eye. And, and so I'm, I'm going, I, I had a lot of ideas, which ones were the ones that really stick out and really kind of left an impression on me. And I remembered a flight that I was working from Hawaii to LA and it also was a red eye. I love red eyes. Um, I work them all the time. <laughs> okay. Why do you love red eyes? Because the passengers go to sleep and I get left to my own devices. And that means I get to write. I wrote my first book by hand in the forward galley while the passengers slept on red eyes. Wow. My former agent once told me red eyes are great. He's from Vegas and they lived in LA. He said, red eyes are great, especially if you're going West coast to East coast. Cause he said, if you go at a 6am flight, I mean, you're losing a day. So take the red eye LAX to New York or Newark. He's like, bam, you hit the ground running. It's great. It's as close as you can get to time travel. See, but you need the coffee once you land. That's the problem. I don't, that's why you probably don't like them because you don't have the, the coffee, you know, to support you the rest of the day as you're groggy and tired roaming about. Yeah. I was working this red eye from Hawaii to LA and I was standing in the forward galley and I'm looking out the, um, you know, the small porthole window in the, in the door and I'm looking out the window and I'm looking out at nothing like a pitch black void for miles and hours in every direction. There is nothing out there except water. And so my brain, the way it works starts, you know, the wheels start turning and I start thinking, what if something happened? what if we went down? What, how would they find us? How would they come get us? How would they save us? How would we save ourselves? And from there, I started coming up with ideas. And that was the moment that I went back to when I was figuring out what my second book was going to be. And I basically took that moment, that primal fear and said, okay, now what is the worst case scenario that I can think of with this fear? And I thought, well, plane goes down, then sinks with people trapped inside and then the plane's teetering on the edge of an undersea cliff. And then once I had the setup and I knew what that was going to be, I basically reverse engineered it to the beginning and just spoke with engineers and pilots and Navy officials and just figured out what the conditions would have to be in order to make this something that could happen. All right. Tell me about the movie stuff. Again, you, you seem like a woman of modest means, really laid back. And all of a sudden, Hollywood's calling, seven-figure deal. How does that happen? Oh my God. The, the, the process for, for the film rights for drowning was one of the most surreal and insane experiences of my life. It was six days in which I didn't leave my house, you know, my little one bedroom condo here, you know, I, I didn't leave my house and I was just on the phone and zoom calls and sending emails back and forth between my agent and studios and all this stuff. And, and it was, it was crazy. And he was on the phone literally sun up to sundown and he, you know, he'd call me for like a 30 second update and he'd say something like, like, um, okay, so, oh, by the way, Steven Spielberg, he has your book. He's reading it right now. Uh, I'm going to have a conversation with him tomorrow. And then he'd like hang up and leave. 
And I'd be standing there with like the phone to my face, like jaw on the floor, like there's two of them, right? You mean like some Steven Spielberg in Ohio, right? Like not the Steven Spielberg, like the man who has been, you know, the creative inspiration of of how my brain works as a storyteller. He's reading something I wrote. And then another time I remember my agent called me again and, and he was like, heads up. In about 15 minutes, there's a very good chance we're going to be on a Zoom call with Nicole Kidman. And then he hangs up. And, and, and mind you, I'm, I'm at home in the writer's uniform, right? Which is sweats and no makeup. And, 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 and you know, that's what a writer wears. So I, the first thought on my mind, I have 15 minutes and I go, I have to wash my hair. Because I'm just like, it's Nicole Kidman. I can't meet Nicole Kidman with dirty hair. And not get, it, was, it was crazy. And the whole, the whole week was nothing but stories like that. And, and it came down to five different studios bidding seven figures. And it ended up going to Warner Brothers. And I am just, I am so excited. So Warner Brothers has Drowning. Who's got the rights to Falling? Universal and Working Title. Okay. Last one, just because I know you're a huge baseball fan. And uh, I don't think everyone's going to watch your appearance with me on MLB Network. But we're going to get into everything about... Your baseball fandom, I believe 24 or 30 parks you've been to, Diamondbacks fan in falling, Yankee Stadium has a really key element to it. Tell me about your love of baseball. Oh, I remember sitting at my kitchen table in 1998 watching the inaugural game of the Arizona Diamondbacks, and I'm watching the anthem. They open the roof. Everybody's lined up. They do the flyover, and it was it was one of those moments where you're like, well... There was my life before this moment, and there was my life after this moment. It was just, I just knew that it was just, it was love at first sight. And and I, you know, my friends and I, we used to, to buy out entire uh, series. We'd leave high school and go down and pay $1 for our tickets and then go to entire series, you know, when there was a team that we wanted to, to see. And it's just, it's just the best sport. I just, I love it. We're definitely kindred spirits in that. We won't agree on coffee. We will agree on the greatness of baseball. TJ Newman, her new book is called Drowning. Go check it out. Go buy it right now. Of course, Falling is also available as well. Uh, this was awesome. I look forward to keeping in touch, and thanks so much for your time. Likewise. This was a blast. Thank you for having me on. All right, TJ Newman, she's awesome. Once again, I read her first book, which, by the way, and I told her the story. I said, here's how I got pitched. I go, your, your agent reached out to me. I said, here's how it is. Steve James's guy, his name is Jeff. Jeff's wife is Jennifer Allen. Jennifer Allen represents TJ Newman. So Jeff gets us Sonny Vaccaro. He goes, by the way, my wife, Jennifer Allen, also represents TJ Newman. She's an author. I'm like, okay, cool. He's like, you know, you love your authors. I'm like, okay. And he's like, um, there's a movie tie. And I go, what? He goes, the books have been sold into movies. I'm like, okay. He goes, but she's also a huge baseball fan. I go, how big? Got it. She's, been, she's been to 24 or 30 parks. Loves the D-backs. I'm like, okay. All right. So then Jennifer hooked it up. And then I said, here's the thing. And I told TJ this when I met her. I was showing her around the studio. By the way, Harold Reynolds played wiffle ball with her. It was incredible. She was so happy. Harold's the best. He was, he's like, who are you? I'm, I'm an author. Okay, cool. You're on with that? Hey, you want to play wiffle ball? I'm 42? Yeah, great. She's like hitting bombs. It was amazing. And I told her, I go, when people say you're a fan, like, I know you're busy right now. So I'm not going to ask you about Zach Gallon or Corbin Carroll. Like, I'll just say, hey, 2001 D-backs. How cool was that? And then I'm not going to like try to pin you. Because right, that right, happens right. sometimes too. I ask the fellas, I go, what was people the People pretend worst? that they're sports fans and then you, you, you pin them down and they're like, ah, oh, yep, yep. Exactly. This is the worst example ever. Matthew Perry. Apparently they hyped him up as like a big Dodgers guy and he came on and he was a disaster. Like didn't know Clayton Kershaw from Mookie yeah. Betts. Like knew nothing. Like yeah. even, even like, hey, how about growing up? Her size are like, yeah, yeah, no, he's great. Like he wouldn't even know it. He probably Kirk just Gibson snickered. He yeah. heard oral. He's like, hmm. 
and, and all, all kidding aside, I think it was, you know, he's gone through a lot of stuff. They said it, it was probably right in the throes of all of his addiction and right. stuff. So you're right. I, I, that may not be far from the truth. You may have heard Oral was like, yeah, sure. He's not even a joke about it. Like, he's, he's actually high as a kite. He has no idea what you're talking about. He doesn't even like baseball. Um, I got sidetracked now. I think Jennifer, yeah, Jennifer, she goes, D-backs, yeah. So TJ was generally into the baseball. But she, when she was there, she's like Instagramming the whole time, doing videos. And then Ryan Dempster, who's an awesome guy, fellow Canadian, he met her and he was like, I'd love to read your book. So after she texted me, she's like, yeah, I'm going to send a bunch of books. And I go, okay, listen, Dempster, I think, is, is a reader. But most of these guys are not readers. I, I don't want to speak for Cody, the love chart guys, but most people I know in TV, they're generally TV people. They like to watch TV. They, uh, there's yeah. not a lot of risk. I, they look at me kind of funny. When I'm in my office reading a book, like, you like to read? I'm like, I, I listen to books. People only <laughs> listen to books. That's true. But I'm like, and she's like, I'm going to send a ton. I'm like, I don't know how to tell her. Like, don't, don't send like 30. Send like five. I'll make sure Ryan Dempster gets one. Harold Reynolds is not going to read one, but, but I'll pretend I'm going to give it to him. And then I'll, I'll give your book to some people that I know will read it. Chris Collins, one of our producers, avid cinephile listener, he will read the book. I'll give it to him. The other guy, I'm not so sure. I'm still thinking about Matthew Perry. Oral Hersizer. I just met him. <laughs> I'm going to ask the guys. They said it was like a train wreck. Like, you have no idea how bad it was. Thankfully, TJ Newman is not Matthew Perry. She's stone cold sober. She's an excellent author. You should go support her books. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, as always, to Chris Cody. Subscribe. Uh, Rate, review, do what you gotta do. I don't think anyone does it, but just do, do it for all me, the please. Shit. Come Apple on, podcast, do what you gotta do. Um, next week, I'm not really sure. The Flash is in a couple weeks. Actually, no, actually, I do know two more good actresses. Jennifer Esposito, she's got a movie at the Tribeca Film Festival. Love her from way back in Spin City. And Patricia Heaton, Ray Romano's wife on Everybody Loves yes. Raven, she's got a new film called Mending the Line. So, two great actresses coming up next week. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. 